Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is December 16, 2021, and I'm speaking with Andy Evans, who is Associate Professor of History at the State University of New York at New Pulse. Andy is author of, among many other works, Anthropology at War, World War I, and the Science of Race in Germany. Thank you for joining us, Andy. Thanks. It's good to be here. Today, Andy, as you know, we're going to be talking about the history of racial science in Germany before 1933, which was the year when the Nazis first took power. In subsequent episodes, we will talk about German racial science during and after the Nazi period. But before we dive in, would you tell us a little bit about your background and your work? Sure. I'm a primarily a historian of Germany, so German history in the 20th century. But I also uh, fell into the history of science along the way. Uh, I'm particularly interested in history of uh, anthropology in Germany in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and the, the history of, of German race science, especially as it intersects with war. Um, I'm particularly interested in the effects of war on society, but also war and science. In previous episodes in our series on the history of racial science, We have heard about scientific efforts in various countries, such as the United States, to differentiate human races biologically and to establish racial hierarchies based on some kind of biological or human science. Did 19th century racial science in Germany resemble these other cases? Well, race science in Germany is a really interesting case um, because it actually differs from other national traditions in pretty significant ways. The field in Germany has different roots than, say, Britain and France, but also develops differently. It actually takes a different trajectory over time. For example, while those disciplines in Britain and France moved from a virulently racist and hierarchical science in the 19th century to a more pluralistic and anti-hierarchical science in the 20th century, Germany, strangely enough, goes the opposite way. Um, It it moves from a liberal and anti-hierarchical anthropology in the late 19th century to a racist and hierarchical race science in, in, in the 20th century. So it offers a really interesting case that, that, is, that diverges from some other national traditions. And there are a couple of things to know about the German tradition or the German case when it comes to anthropology uh, and race science. The first is just that the terms are different. For example, race science as a term, Rassenkunde, as it's the term in German, wasn't really a term used in the German context in the late 19th century. That comes later in in the 20th century. So the study of race in Germany in the 19th century takes place within this discipline called anthropologie, which really is physical anthropology, the study of the anatomy and, and physiology of the human species. And that's different in the German context from ethnology or what we think of as cultural anthropology, which they often called Volkerkunde or ethnologie. So the terms are slightly different. But but then also German anthropology arrives a bit later on the scene than in other national traditions. Um, that's in part because there is no Germany before um, 1871. Um, at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, you get the establishment of a of the new German Empire. Really, anthropological, German anthropological institutions are created after that. German anthropological societies, the journals, and so on, are really a product of the late 19th century. 
And in the German case, they really revolve around one guy, Rudolf Virchow, uh, an important professor of pathology in Berlin who dedicates uh, decades of his life to, to anthropology. Um, he's the, the main founder of these institutions. He runs the journals um, and through his lieutenants, his colleagues, they really control the discipline in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. And these men, these anthropologists, champion a, a liberal anthropology. That is an, an anthropology that's informed by 19th century liberalism. So they believed as liberals in a kind of universalism. They believed that human nature was the same everywhere. They believed that human beings shared more commonalities than differences. They embraced what they called the unity of the human species. And that had a bunch of consequences for the kind of anthropology that they were doing, the kind of physical anthropology that they were doing. So they definitely believed in race without, without a doubt, and they were setting out to determine categories of human variation, but they saw races as physical variations only, not linked to culture, not linked to ability, not linked to behavior, not linked to intellect, simply categories of, of physical variation. And that meant that they refused to construct racial hierarchies. They didn't want to rank any category or any race higher or lower on a scale. Um, they were also opposed to anti-Semitism. They rejected the idea of a, of a superior Germanic race. They came out strongly against the idea that there was something called an Aryan race. They rejected the notion of a superior Nordic race. In fact, they maintained also that race as a category, wasn't related to, to nation or, or culture in any way, right? So this is sort of the core of this liberal tradition in the late 19th century. There are other strands that were present, um, but this is the dominant one. And it's the dominant one because Virchow and his lieutenants control the, the institutions. And just one more point about this too. It's interesting and important to note that Franz Boas comes out of this tradition essentially the founder of American anthropology, um, receives his education in Berlin under these professors in the 1880s. Um, he's influenced by them. And then he goes on to come to the United States and founds a highly pluralistic and anti-hierarchical brand of anthropology um, in the United States. So this is so different from what I've come to understand from these episodes of the case in other countries. Do you understand this liberal tradition as a personal commitment from Virchow and his lieutenants? Or is there a different way to understand this liberal tradition? In particular, when you mentioned they rejected other views, with whom were they in contention? Right. Of course, you know, 19th century Germany, 19th, late 19th century Germany is awash in various kinds of uh, what you might call folkish theories. That is to say, people who believe in some sort of notion of an, of an Aryan race, who believe in racial hierarchy and so on. Houston Stewart Chamberlain, for example, is influential. Um, there are other figures. But Virchow and his guys are these careful, really cautious empiricists. And they, they refuse to, to let in that stuff. They don't want any politics in their science. Um, in fact, he's, he's so cautious that he, he doesn't want to accept Darwinism. One of the things he wants to do is to say, like, the jury is still out on, on Darwinism. We need, to, we need to wait until we have more data, right? So they, they consider themselves these empiricists, and they want to keep out what they consider the sort of more political brands of, of racial thought that are out there in the culture at the time. 
and and his school, Virchow School, was dominant in Germany institutionally and intellectually? Sure. So, I mean, if you just look at where anthropology is happening, right? So one of the main places it's happening is in anthropological societies. They're, sometimes they're local. There's one larger German one. And uh, Virchow and his lieutenants run those. They're the presidents of those societies, right? And they're the ones who determine which articles get into the journals that are published by those societies. And there are very few um, positions for anthropology at the universities, but those that, that there are are staffed by by Virchow and his guys. So in Munich, there's a chair of anthropology, and it's chaired by Johannes Ranke, who's uh, one of Virchow's chief lieutenants. How did this liberal tradition in anthropology fare in the 20th century in Germany? So in the 20th century, that liberal tradition dies out um, and it gets replaced by a new brand of physical um, anthropology that is called Rassenkunde or or race science. That term first appears around the 1890s, but it's not used very widely. You can actually track this on Google Ngram. You can look and see the, the use of the term, but it enters widespread usage in anthropological circles, especially in the 1920s when it becomes sort of the new brand name of of anthropology in, in Germany. And here what you've got with Rassenkunde in the 20th century is a new generation of anthropologists who are shaped by imperialism, by uh, war, and they're not interested in those sort of careful distinctions and sort of that empirical tradition in the same vein uh, as, as show. They consider that to be sort of old-fashioned and, and maybe irrelevant. And chief among them is uh, Eugen Fischer. He's probably the most prominent anthropologist of the Weimar period and goes on to become the most prominent anthropologist of, of the Nazi period. So, I mean, Rassenkunde is really different from the liberal tradition in the late 19th century. They, they draw on new approaches from this emerging field of genetics to start determining connections between race and intellect, between race and culture, between race and behavior. They think they can, they can make those connections, whereas Virchow said no way. They begin to construct racial hierarchies, they're interested in, you know, the worth of races, uh, in quotation marks, and they, they, they make these hierarchies. They're really now interested in the racial identity of Germans in a way that the previous generation wasn't. They embrace the idea of a superior Nordic race that's present in the German population. And they embrace eugenics, what's known as racial hygiene in the German uh, context, that effort of selectively breeding populations based on racial principles um, or, quote, you know, genetic health, end quote. So that's a major change. That's a major shift from, from one to the other. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's definitely a, a shift in the, in the discipline. And, and of course, there's a debate, as you might expect with historians, about why, why that change happens. And there are a couple of different factors to, to point to. One of them is Virchow dies in 1902, and his lieutenants stick around for a little while longer, but um, by the war, most of them um, have, have passed away. You mean World War I? World War One, yeah, by by nineteen fourteen or so. I think Johannes Ranke dies in nineteen sixteen, but you know that generation is aging and 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 passing by the first decade of the twentieth century. But I, I would point to a couple of factors that facilitate that shift. One is the influence of imperialism on the discipline. Anthropologists, really, the younger generation, try to benefit from the imperial exploits of the German state. Eugen Fischer, for example, studies populations in German Southwest Africa in nineteen oh eight. He publishes his work on that in 1914. Um, so, you know, there's this entanglement with imperialism um, that happens. And then I also put a lot of emphasis on World War I. 
it's during the war that anthropologists try to accommodate their science to the new political and ideological climate of the war. They try to mobilize their discipline for the war, creating a more nationalistic science. Um, and one of the things they do is they begin to portray Germany's enemies during World War I as racially different from Germans. That, that's one of the, the features of German anthropology during, during the Great War. So even before the Nazi period in Germany, did this change in German science affect people in Germany or in the German Empire? Were there actual policy impacts? Sure. So what we have here is a, is a, a science that is fairly technical <laughs> and really mainly happening at the universities. But once you get to Rasenkunde, they're interested in a broader mission. They're interested in trying to popularize their ideas and, and move those ideas out into the, into the public, particularly their embrace of racial hygiene or, or eugenics. That starts around 1900 or so, but it really picks up steam after World War I, when you get this sense that Germany is weak after the war, maybe even sick or ill. It needs to be rescued by science, right? So here come these anthropologists with their eugenicist programs to sort of improve the population. Um, and so they do things like, you know, sponsor marriage counseling to encourage couples to think about what genetic maladies they may have and or may not have so that they don't make a bad match as eugenicists would think of it. And that really is a, is a change in mission for, for the anthropologists. The flip side of that, too, in the 1920s, it's really quite interesting, is an obsession with the cultivation of the Nordic race, the so-called Nordic race this, that they considered superior, and, and even an obsession with, with racial beauty. Uh, let me give you an example. In the 1920s, the prominent uh, publisher Lehmann published a series of Nordic racial beauty contests with anthropologists as judges, right? So uh, Oregon Fisher is a judge on one, um, Otto Resche is a judge on one. So here's how these would work. There's a 1926 contest for best Nordic racial heads. So here's how it would work. Entrants would, would submit photographs of themselves, like headshots. The judges would pick the most Nordic, the most representative, the most beautiful Nordic head. And then winners would get cash prizes. And then the photos would be published widely. They published this, this collection of all the winners, right? Um, and that's really designed to sort of popularize race science and eugenics to get people to think of themselves, you know, in racial terms and to internalize eugenic principles about preserving the, the Nordic race. They, they sponsor one for the best Nordic family tree. That's a similar sort of contest. But you can see that change and that they're really moving towards popularizing these ideas and engaging with the public in the 1920s. You've talked about a developing interest in the Nordic race and in the distinctions between Germans and their enemies in World War I. What were the international connections of people who practiced race science in Germany to people in the UK or France or the US or elsewhere? Right. So they, they consider themselves to be part of an international community of scientists, and, and they are um, influenced by other national traditions, right? So they, they very much do consider themselves to be part of, especially when it comes to eugenics in the 1920s, this is like an international 
movement. So they're they're interested in what the Americans are doing, and they're interested in what other countries are doing. And you know that is part of creating a sense that this is just science, right? Uh, and what we need here is to follow the science, or what we need here is to improve the population, right? So th- these are widely held ideas in the early part of the 20th century that aren't particularly German at all. They're adapted to the German context here by these German race scientists, but they um, attend conferences, they correspond with each other. Um, there, there are connections there. This is a really interesting and in some ways surprising history that you've sketched out for us. What kinds of perspectives does the history you shared with us shed on the later history of German racial science and policy? Right. So I think there are a couple of different ways to to think about this. Um, One of them is just to say the basic fact, which is Nazi race science doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, It doesn't begin in 1933. Um, In fact, it's not even created by the Nazis, really. Um, Instead, the, the Nazi regime plugs into what's already happening in German anthropological science. Um, In in fact, Nazi anthropology, Nazi race science, isn't that much of a departure from the Rassenkunde of the 1920s that people like Eugen Fischer are already engaging in. In fact, many of the race scientists from the 1920s prove extremely eager to to work with the Nazi regime once it comes to power in uh, in 1933, and Fischer is chief among them. Um, his institute in Berlin gets a lot of money and a lot of funding and a lot of prestige um, after 1933, but it's founded in 1927. So, you know, this shows that um, the Nazis are really plugging into things that are already there. But also I would say um, it's really important to point out that the trends that culminate in Nazi race science were not the only ones, that other traditions existed, including a, a liberal tradition. Uh, and that fact, I think, shows us the, the contingency of this story. In other words, the development of this virulently racist and hierarchical race science was not inevitable or foreordained, right? It was the result, the product of decisions made by people, especially these scientists, in key moments. Decisions to accommodate themselves to political and ideological environments, to adjust their aims and focus of their science, to get funding, to get attention, to match the political concerns of the moment. And that, I think, is something we need to watch for. That's a larger lesson I think we can think about. You know, accommodations of science to ideology or politics, those are dangerous. And uh, we should keep our, keep our eyes out for that. It's not just a German problem in the 20th century. Thank you, Andy, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. For additional resources on this and other topics, please check our website at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Rita Allen Foundation.